Survivor fans, we are not just surviving, we are thriving with the power of nutrition. Let's talk about wonderful pistachios, a snack that's not only delicious, but also a protein powerhouse. When I was on that island, I would give anything for a snack to keep my energy levels up. Well, did you know wonderful pistachios are one of the highest protein nuts out there? Each one ounce serving gives you six grams of protein, delivering over 10% of your daily value. Whether you're a hardcore survivor or just need a boost during your day, wonderful pistachios are the perfect personal protein stash ready to go whenever hunger strikes. So whether you're cracking open each nut one by one or enjoying the convenience of no shells, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Outwit, outplay, outsnack with Wonderful Pistachios. Visit wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. Survivor fans know there's nothing more important than a tribe you can trust, and the hunt for the perfect hire can be as tough as winning an immunity challenge. But what if you could just skip the search and just match? Enter Indeed, the ultimate hiring partner. With over 350 million monthly visitors worldwide, according to Indeed data, Indeed is more than a job site. It's your personalized hiring platform. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, connecting you with candidates at the speed you need. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches. Indeed is your compass in the hiring jungle. It's a matching engine, not just for hiring, but effortlessly assembling your dream team. Indeed's matching engine learns from your preferences, leveraging over 140 million qualifications daily. The more you use it, the sharper it gets. Join three and a half million businesses worldwide that trust Indeed for fast quality hires. Listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit at Indeed.com slash Survivor. Go to Indeed.com slash Survivor now. Support our show by mentioning you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Survivor. Terms and conditions apply. Need a hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to On Fire with Jeff Probst. That's me, and this is the only podcast that takes you inside the making of Survivor from the producers who make the show. I'm the host and showrunner of Survivor. I'm joined each week by two other television producers, Brittany Crapper, a supervising producer on Survivor. Hello. And Jay Wolf, who doesn't work on Survivor, but is an Emmy-nominated TV producer and the producer of this podcast. Hey there. So hopefully you've watched the latest episode now, because that's kind of the idea. You watch the episode, then you listen to the podcast, and we sort of bring the two together. All right. For today's featured topic, I want to start by taking you on a little journey. Okay. Um, Imagine you're a Survivor player. Mm. It's day 11. You're tired, you're hungry, and it's a challenge day. And you show up, and now you're standing on this floating platform, and there I am in my beautiful blue shirt with orange (laughs) cap. And you look up and see a 30-foot tower, and immediately you start realizing, oh, my God, I'm going to have to leap off that tower. I'm going to have to dive underwater. I'm going to have to untie some knots. <laughs> then I got to navigate a balance beam and then a puzzle. Oh man, I can feel the adrenaline. Yes, right. That adrenaline, that excitement, that panic and the, the pressure you feel to deliver for your tribe. That's what we want from a survivor challenge. And mm. that's our featured topic today. Survivor challenges. How are they designed? How do we build them? How do you test them? How are they judged? We'll cover it all. We'll do it live. Plus, your questions and one lucky fan gets to tell me why I suck. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But first, let's get inside episode four of Survivor 44. Jay, what stood out? 
What stood out to me was that a ridiculous red X completely convinced Sarah that she had found an idol. It's really interesting. And, you know, the reason it worked is the 43 previous seasons of idols transitioning from things that were beautiful and perfect and therefore absolutely certain, because where else would it have come from, to idols that are now not so perfect. Sometimes they're just beads on a string. Right. I remember talking with Zach Jensen years ago. He runs the art department with Simo Ross. And the conversation was, we have to stop making these idols so beautiful because it's too obvious that it's real. And ultimately, we want people to be able to fake each other out. And Zach was like, but this is what I do. You know, <laughs> we're artists in here. Right. But they started slowly changing them just a little and a little more. And now here we are in season 44 where it is absolutely plausible and possible that two sticks painted red could be a clue to something. <laughs> the next thing I noticed that I, that I think was a big part of this episode was the tribe swap. What's the intention behind it? Well, the big theme is creating uncertainty. As somebody said in this episode, the relationships I've built are no more. This was the first twist we ever did in season three in Africa. We had three people from each tribe have this summit. And then we said, you're going to go back to the other tribe. And I remember mm -hmm. this guy Silas saying, but that's not fair. I already have relationships. And we thought, yeah, that's why we're doing it, to force you to adapt. And so that's the same reason today. It's, it's this cross-pollination where... The game is so fluid now that Carson goes to a new tribe and it's not a done deal that he's the odd person out. He could be just what somebody needs. They want to form their own alliance. So that's what you're looking for. And you saw three different entry points. Josh and Carson and Jamie all took different approaches to how they were going to try to integrate. Right. I think that this is where the good players become great and mm. the not so good players start to crumble. You're right. And it, it's a theme we keep echoing, which is don't hate the messenger. <laughs> you know, it, you got switched. Start adapting. Keep going. This is the game. Build your resume. Right. This is a moment you brag about at the final three. Yeah. The last thing that I realized was that Sarah just found out watching the episode that her idol was indeed fake. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you think there's any solace in the fact that she's realizing now, even if I'd played it, <laughs> I was going home? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, all I can say about Sarah is very smart player. And that it's not a surprise she was taken out. They were sensing very quickly that she's going to be good with relationships. Mm. And she seemed to have a great sense of humor. So hopefully she's getting a good laugh. But what what the everything you've brought up here, Jay, really hones in on one thing. Information is everything. You've got to get players to tell you what they know. And then you have to decide if they're telling you the truth. That's the game. Yeah, and Sarah, hopefully you've stopped beating yourself up for not playing that idol. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll get into our featured topic, Survivor Challenges. Survivor fans know there's nothing more important than a tribe you can trust, and the hunt for the perfect hire can be as tough as winning an immunity challenge. But what if you could just skip the search and just match? Enter Indeed, the ultimate hiring partner. With over 350 million monthly visitors worldwide, according to Indeed data, Indeed is more than a job site. It's your personalized hiring platform. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, connecting you with candidates at the speed you need. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches. Indeed is your compass in the hiring jungle. It's a matching engine, not just for hiring, but 
effortlessly assembling your dream team. Indeed's matching engine learns from your preferences, leveraging over 140 million qualifications daily. The more you use it, the sharper it gets. Join three and a half million businesses worldwide that trust Indeed for fast quality hires. Listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit at Indeed.com slash Survivor. Go to Indeed.com slash Survivor now. Support our show by mentioning you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Survivor. Terms and conditions apply. Need a hire? You need Indeed. Listen, wearing the same clothes for 26 days straight on Survivor really made me realize the importance of buying high quality, long lasting clothes. That's why I love Quince. They have timeless, well-made pieces that last for years and don't go out of style. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. Buying pieces from Quince means that I don't have to keep buying new clothes every year which is better for my wallet and the environment. I recently got a super chic Italian leather tote from Quince and I'm loving how it looks. The best part about Quince is that by partnering directly with top factories, they're able to keep prices super affordable. I'm talking 50 to 80% cheaper than similar brands. And the other best part is that Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I love that. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash survivor for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash survivor to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash survivor. All right, welcome back to On Fire with Jeff Probst. Let's get into our featured topic, Survivor Challenges. Why do we need them? The big picture is that Survivor is designed to test you in various ways, and it's how you respond to those tests that we like to watch, the human behavior. So challenges are one of those tests. I think one of the keys is that we do design them from the point of view of the player. How can we test the players in ways that will either highlight their strengths, or expose their weaknesses. Right. It forces the tribe to make decisions. Who's going to be best in which role? Who has the guts to say, I'll do the puzzle. And, you know, this whole time you're being judged and evaluated constantly by your tribe mates. And also by the folks at home who are then jumping on a podcast to talk all about you. (laughs) (laughs) But you're right. right. It is. You're being watched by everyone. Mm. And the result of how you do in that challenge is what changes the game. Because if, you know, a tribe wins, it's amazing what happens to their morale. They, they got the reward. They won immunity. They start to bond. And now you, they feel momentum. And suddenly that rainstorm, it's not so bad because they won. Right. And then when you flip it, and Brittany's seen it firsthand, it is amazing when a tribe loses how fast the morale can start to disintegrate because they didn't get the reward. They didn't get immunity. So now they have to go to tribal council. So we have conflict and now we have to conspire. And really what you're heading to every single episode is who do we vote out? And so there's all kinds of criteria, but challenges are definitely one of them because if you win challenges, you don't go to tribal. Mm. That's why it's a dilemma. Who do we keep? Somebody who's really good at a challenge, but not in my alliance. Or do I say, sorry, I got to get rid of our great challenge person because they're not in my alliance. These all factor in. It almost reminds me of like a hunter-gatherer analogy in that if you are... Oh, an analogy. I can't (laughs) wait to evaluate you. Maybe I shouldn't make it. If if you're the tribe that wins, you've gone out and you've found food, you've caught a fish or you found berries and so everybody gets to eat. Whereas if you lose... You didn't catch a fish. Yeah, that's and a pretty so, good analogy. Yeah. Thank you. No, it is. And I think you're, I think, but you know, he's hitting on what 
we really try to hold on to going back to day one, which is you're forming a society in which you must rely on each other. So it is, as a metaphor, if I help us win the challenge, I have brought home our food. It's the turning point, the challenge. Turning point, definitely always a turning point. Somebody wins, somebody loses. So is there a checklist for what makes a great challenge? Yeah. I mean, there's a basic checklist, which is every challenge must have at least one of the following. A physical requirement where you are pushing yourself by climbing or crawling or swimming. Or it could have a mental component where your brain is involved. It could be a word scramble or a puzzle. Or it could be simply emotional. That's you against you. You see that often in endurance challenges where it's simply mind over matter. You're hanging on a pole 15 feet in the air. How long can you last? Yeah, and they've changed a lot over the years. I feel like we're continuing to push the envelope in terms of builds and how big the challenges are. But Mm. also I feel like we push the players in terms of physical difficulty a lot more. A big sign of that in the new era is 10 years ago, we would have given you a wooden ladder to get up a 15 foot tower. Now you have to make a human ladder. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) We're also forcing more individual roles. You know, you'll hear me say Mm. one player Mm. must. That's just to put a spotlight and a little more pressure Mm. on somebody to deliver. And you really see that pressure in the end game which is often a puzzle. Sometimes it's tossing a ring or whatever, but the pressure is, this is it. This is the only thing standing between you and victory. Right, like we just saw in this episode. And you don't realize that after swimming and climbing and jumping and finding a key and getting across a balance beam, that that manta ray puzzle that they showed at the beginning probably isn't so easy. And you're picking up on something that happens, which is all that adrenaline, which pushes you through the water and over the beam, now you got to get rid of it Mm. because now you just need to quiet your mind. Well, it's hard to do. And then I'm back there barking behind you going, oh, really (laughs) sucking it up at the challenge. (laughs) Yeah. And that goes back to decisions and why it's so important to put people in the right roles because you have to perform till the bitter end. I will say one thing I like about our puzzles right now is we've decided to keep some of our iconic puzzles and repeat them. And you're starting to see, especially younger people who grew up watching Survivor when they were eight Mm -hmm. or nine, they start making 3D puzzles. And then sometimes you get lucky and the season you're on has a puzzle that you made a 3D model of and you kill it. I love that because Mm -hmm. it rewards preparation. These are people who were doing this for years before they even got on the show. And it pays off. Matthew did that with the ball game. In his backyard. Right. Right. So now we know the criteria of what it takes to make a challenge. What's the process of getting it there? Well, we've refined it over the years a lot. So we we have a challenge team, John Kerhofer, who is one of the original founding forefathers of Survivor. He's been there every single day, responsible for every single challenge. And he has a Christopher Marchand, otherwise known as Millhouse, and AB. And that trio is ultimately responsible for all of the challenges. And so what they do is they lay out everything they want to do. And that's a lot of work. They're looking for variety and scale and flow and different kinds of tests and all of these things. Then they go confer with our art department. So they meet with Zach and Simo who run the art department and they say, how much of this is achievable? In a season, how much of this can we build? Are any of these things elaborate engineering things that you think we can solve? So they are now on the same page. We can do all of this. 
Then they go confer with one of our challenge editors, Dave Armstrong, who's an amazing editor. Fantastic. And, and Dave will say things like, hey, you know, last time we did this challenge, you had a horizontal puzzle and it was difficult for us to see their faces. So in this location, could you use a vertical puzzle? So we start adapting things like that and trying to learn from past seasons. So once they've checked in with everybody and they feel like they have a package that they can deliver, then Matt Van Wagenen and I get the pitch. And it's usually just over Zoom now. It's a, an elaborate pitch. I mean, it used to be Kerhoffer would draw stick figures to try to show you what was going to happen <laughs> in the challenge. They were great stick figures. <laughs> they <though>. were. He, <laughs> he actually worked really hard. He tried to become a better artist because he knew that he was trying to convey drama and emotion and water splashing with stick figures. And he did a pretty good job. <laughs> <laughs> then he started hiring artists. And that became really fun because you could put emotion in the faces. And that may seem like you don't need it, but you you are imagining the drama of it. And they're able mm -hmm. to show you when they cross the beam, here's why it will be dramatic. And so that really changed a lot. And then AB started adding, using SketchUp, this program SketchUp, two scale measurements this beam is this long, it's this wide, it'll be this high off the ground. And so we basically have a blueprint for how to make these challenges so that anybody from any department could look at it and say, oh, I got it. So tell me about how you actually build these things. Well, that's a great part of this whole experience because yes, some are just timber and nails and paint, but most are way more elaborate. And I think it's deceiving because you see these challenges in a field in the jungle and you think, ah, oh, it's kind of like my backyard. I could, you know, I could do something like that, but you couldn't. I mean, think about the challenge where you have to assemble a cart with all these pieces. Then you have to roll the cart and collect something, coconuts, whatever. Then you have to take that cart apart and use the same pieces to make a slingshot and then launch those coconuts at a target. <laughs> right. That's pretty genius Oh yeah, that somebody like Kerhofer or Millhouse or AB thought of it. And then somebody who works with Zach and Simo figured out how to do it. I'm stunned. I mean, I'm somebody who seriously struggles to change a light bulb. So when I walk out and see this, I can't believe it's the show I work on. So we've all seen the drone shot that zooms over the jungle. Right. And you see these gigantic challenges, right? And they're laid out from top to tail. How long does it take to build those large challenges? A long time. Yeah. Even the small ones can take a couple of weeks. But when you think about giant water slides, a huge teeter-totter in the water. We, we had one where a tribe had to crank this line and it pulled the players on like a boogie board. I mean, those are elaborate four or five weeks to make that. There's one lead person from the art department who oversees everything, make sure it's built. You might have a crew of 10 people. It could be 30 people, depends how big it is. Then you have to scenic it, which is paint it, you know, and make it look beautiful. So it's, it's a lot of, it speaks to the question of people said, I bet you put challenges in to help your favorite players. <laughs> That's impossible. We don't even know who the players are when we're making these challenges. <laughs> And then on top of this, for many of the challenges, you're not just doing this in the middle of the jungle. You're doing it in the middle of the ocean. Mm. Okay. I'm going to attempt, even though I can't change a light bulb, to explain how elaborate it is to secure a challenge 
in the middle of the ocean that humans can then run and jump on or jump off of and all of that stuff. It always blows my mind. Mine too. And here's what I know, Brittany. This is, this is how I've translated what they do out there. Okay. It's a combination of a few things, but it typically involves these giant concrete blocks, which are about 200 pounds each. So they're going to be what you're going to anchor the thing with. And then you have these railway wheels, which is almost like one of those big 10 pound weights you would see in a gym. Mm -hmm. So you have those, and then you have these little screw anchors. And what you're doing is imagine you have that floating pontoon that I talked about in the beginning that mm -hmm. the people are standing on. Just the pontoon would have say 40 blocks underneath the water on the ocean floor. So that's 200 pounds each. That's like 8,000 pounds. But then you have to factor in the tide of the ocean is going to rise and fall. So if you just anchored it with no slack in the line, then when the tide goes up or down, it could, it could snap it or it could pull it underwater. So you, and you have to keep the lane straight. I forgot <laughs> yeah. about that. Yeah. Wow. There's, I didn't even realize like there's so many things to think about. And it's all hidden. It's all underwater. Where cameras can't see it. Where cameras can't see it. <laughs> so what they do is they create these counterweights with pulleys and they have mooring lines, which are secured to different spots on the concrete blocks, which are on the ocean floor. And then those lines, they go back up to the pontoon. Are you still with me? I'm, yeah. I'm very with okay. you. Okay. So you have these lines that go back up to the pontoon, but they aren't tied. They can't be tied because you have the same issue. They have to be moving. So they go around another pulley. And so you have this wow. thing that's able to ebb and flow with the rising, falling tide, but will still stay basically secure, which is why when you see the players on a pontoon and the, the tide hits it, the pontoon moves a little. And the players are like, whoa, whoa. Yeah, you're kind of secured to the ocean floor, <laughs> but you're also still floating. And so next time you see a challenge where we're in the water and somebody's leaping off a platform, just imagine the infrastructure and the time spent underwater with scuba tanks and all of this that it takes. And we do it one time for the players and then we take it apart. And so then how do you end up moving all of these thousands of pounds of pieces everywhere? Actually, that's the easiest part. Henny runs our Marine Department. Henny is this amazing dude. We actually build our own boats now that Henny designs. Mm. He and Maui, they will design a boat and then we'll just go make our own boat. So Henny would say, oh, that's the easy part. We just tow them out there. That's I'm not worried about that. And then they protect them from the storms by just watching the weather. And if something really bad is happening, they might adjust. And we always have security out there to keep an eye on them. But we've lost things. We lost a barge, one of our favorite barges that we've used for years. Really? Yes, it was secured out there, and we were going to use it. And I think what happened was the main anchor line got cut on a rock, and, it, and the barge started floating. It's the middle of the night, and we show up the next morning, and the barge is gone. No. Oh my. <laughs> I've never heard this. Yeah. And, and the rain was bad. It had been storming. So Henny never risks anybody's safety. He's like, we, we right. lost the barge. We can't go look for it right now. The rain cleared and they started looking. They couldn't find it. John Kerhofer <laughs> had an afternoon out for a scout. And he was with Gabby, one of our Marine captains. And they saw it. They were 15 no. miles away. It was shipwrecked. It was half on its side. Half of the nose was in the... Little in did the, they know, oh, no. 16 castaways had just crawled off that bar <laughs> to a new adventure. For a new season of Survivor. <laughs> but we retrieved it, 
and use it today. And what Henny does now is he has trackers on every boat, every ah. barge. So if we do lose one and it ends up in Guam, <laughs> we can find it. Oh, that's great. Wow. It really gives me a perspective on how large this operation is. Like right. there's an entire other department running this to go find a boat. That Yes, we're a massive team and we have lots of departments and they are all run by somebody. That's why this show works is we have so many leaders including dream teamers, because the next thing that happens is we got to get it up on its feet. Mm. And so Brittany's done this. That was your first job. So fun. You start, basically you walk us through it in the art department. Yeah. So they'll have like parts of the challenge set up in the art department to start feeling out the elements. And so they'll pull dream teamers over to start testing out the little pieces. And that's where they'll start making small adjustments and see like, oh, we need to alter this a little bit or move this a little bit. Yeah, and then we might move it into the field where we're going to shoot it. But it's not painted, it's not finished, but we'll do a test. And a test is different from a rehearsal. A test is very small team, no camera operators, nothing like that. It's just a small group of people, and there may be a, say, one lane finished so that we can look at a team of dream teamers, run through this, and say, okay, we got it. Maybe we could adjust this, or maybe we should make this more difficult. You're still just modifying and adjusting all the time. And then you finally get to the point where you're at a full rehearsal. So the rehearsal is full crew. This is all cameras, everything as if it were real. The reason it's important is that when the players finally show up, they only run it one time. We don't go back and do it again. So we have to get everything. This is our chance. So we bring the dream team in and have them play the part of a player in the challenge. So we have a full challenge that we're running with the dream team. And this is where we have all our cameras there, cameras on tripods, cameras that are handheld. We have drones in the air. We've got big jibs. We run everything as if it were the real challenge because for us, it is our only shot to ensure that we get everything we need when we turn it over to the players. Well, Britt, you did this as a dream teamer. What did I you did. feel when you were out there? Uh, a lot of pressure. <laughs> really? No, it was it was so much fun. I mean, those are some of my favorite memories. But but yeah, it is kind of a lot of pressure. You've got like thirty cameras pointed at you, and Jeff's calling the challenge. Survivors ready. Adrenaline's rushing, and and it is. It's a lot of fun. And if you win, do you get individual immunity? Or? <laughs> no, no. But they would put stakes on it so that we were just as driven to win, right? Um, my favorite was always the sleep in. So you oh, get wow. to sleep in an hour. Yeah, That's that was- it. One hour is a big deal out there. <laughs> but worth running for, for so sure. So after you do this big rehearsal, then there is a, a little post-mortem, like Dave Dryden, our director, will go look at footage to make sure he's happy with all the camera angles. We might have final tiny tweaks on the challenge, nothing significant. But really what you're doing with all of this is you're preparing for what might happen. Because remember, it's all designed through the point of view of the player. So we're imagining this run one time. We don't know who's going to be in which role. We don't know who's going to win or lose. We only know that somebody will be in every role and somebody will win and someone will lose. That's why we want to make sure that the challenge is great. And how do you keep them fair? A lot of time spent on tiny little things like this exact same distance and height on every single element of a challenge. We always have the same person tie Mm. all the knots so that we know they've tied them at the exact same tension. 
I mean, we get down to inches and then we have a standards and practices person. And if you don't know what that is on any kind of a game show where there is a prize, you have to have somebody that ensures that it's fair. They are out there essentially to make sure that we don't do something that would favor one player or one tribe. We also have judges. Typically, it's going to be people from the challenge department. You don't ever really see that on the show, but they are watching so that if the rule is you must paddle your boat around that buoy, we have somebody watching that buoy. So there's always somebody watching everything, but it doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. We had a situation in Survivor Pearl Islands with Burton. We had a spelling challenge. Never do a spelling <laughs> challenge when I'm your host. <laughs> But they had to spell a bunch of words, and the rule was if you got one wrong, you were out or something like that. Well, Burton spelled all these words, and I go over and I check them like a teacher. Yep, 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 liaison. Yep, that's right. We give him the immunity. He leaves, and then somebody on our team goes, uh, liaison has another I in it. Burton oh, got it wrong. No. So we call him back. This is all in the episode. Yeah. And I say, Burton, um, I, I made a mistake and uh, you don't actually have immunity. In fact, you're out. And we picked up the challenge and I think Dara ended up winning it. So we have had those situations, but they are pretty rare because of the preparation we take. So how soon do you know that you've found a repeatable challenge? For me, it's instant. I, it, sometimes it's happening while the challenge is, is going for the first time. I remember the first time we did the challenge where you, you have to hold your arm in the air your arm is tied to a, like a rope and there's a giant bucket and the bucket has water. And when your arm gets too tired and you drop it, the bucket tips and it dumps on you. Just watching everybody standing there with one arm going, I can't feel my arm anymore. And they're looking up, but they can't look up too much because they can't feel their arm. And you're like, okay, this is pretty good. And it's really simple. And it's a fair test. It's endurance. Right. I, I actually, I remember in the field when I first watched Simotion and just being like, wow, this is something special. Simotion is the one where you drop a ball and yeah. it goes through the track and then you have to drop another ball and it goes through a separate intersecting track and you have to catch the balls. I told this on the show, but that was created by Simo, whose name I've said a couple of times today, who one of our leaders in the art department, that was an art project for him. He wow. just made that for fun. <laughs> and the Kerhoffer went, oh my God, that would be an amazing challenge. And now it's become, as Brittany said, iconic. Yeah. I mean, the maybe the most classic one is the poles that you just, they're 15 feet in the air and you just mm -hmm. hang on them for as long as you can. We call it get a grip. Mm -hmm. And that that is a challenge that the minute you look at it, we got to do this again. Wait, so you have names for these things sometimes? They're all named. Absolutely. And because Kerhoffer is a rock guy, I think there's almost 200 challenges that are named after rock songs. The first time he named one after a rock song was a Rush song called Witch Hunt. We have like Crocodile Rock, I think Pinball Wizard, uh, <laughs> Fools in the Rain, which was a Zeppelin song. So Kerhoffer and the team have a good sense of humor. Uh, here's uh, one that this is a fun little Easter egg from season 35, episode four. I had a bunch of Foo Fighter songs in my head, the <laughs> titles of the song. This was just my own inside joke. And I was going to try to find places to drop these song titles within the challenge while it was happening. <laughs> so it was 
something about, you know, the big question you got to ask your tribe mates is, are they helping you or are they throwing you a monkey wrench into your plans? <laughs> and it's another hot day in Fiji. My poor brain is fried. <laughs> oh my, you, sorry, I have to interrupt. You're doing this while also remembering and memorizing all of the actual challenge rules and calling. Your brain can do yeah, that? Yeah, that's one thing my brain can do. <laughs> it, and it, it included in times like these, you need a little luck. And then the ending was, and I knew the ending would work because at the end I was going to say, you must finish however long it takes. <laughs> And so we did that and we don't tell anybody, but we just put it into the show and the editors are like, are these Foo Fighters songs? Oh my God, <laughs> yes. this is great. I got to go back and watch this. It's kind of fun. And, um, but those are some of the ways that we keep it fresh for ourselves as well. <laughs> so have you ever learned any lessons from challenges that didn't work? Always. I mean, do you want the story of the most, the one that we learned the most from? I think we need the story. Okay. It was Survivor Palau, and the challenge was called Bob Bob on a Buoy, and it's a Howard Stern reference to Gary <laughs> Delabate, who's the executive producer. He's called Bob a Buoy. Just to set the stage, the challenge was the final three challenge, and a super fan will remember this. They had a really long pole. They were in the water, and they had a very small disc to put their feet on, and they had to bob in the water. And this thing would just go back and front and left and right, but it would never fall into the water. It was just how long can you stand on this tiny little disc? So we did it with the Dream Team, and it lasted about an hour because it was painful. So we have Katie, Tom Westman, and Ian, and they get up on this thing, and we're an hour in. Oh, they're going longer than the dream team. That's not unusual. They got a million dollars on the line. Three hours in, I start to sit down on the floating pontoon, and here comes the rain. Man, we're going to be here for a while. Then the sun comes out, and now we're up here like five hours. Oh now the gosh. sun starts to set, and we're in the middle of this little lagoon, and we don't have any lights. So quickly, our team gets our pyro department. We have a pyro department. And they bring some of these floating urns that have fire in them. And we're going to light the players by firelight. So we float these out and we secure them while the challenge is going on. Tom Westman, who was a fireman, said, this wasn't in the rules. And I have smoke in my eyes. I don't like it. Mm. And I went, he's right. We did not ever say we might bring fire in. So we pull the urns out. <laughs> wow. Now we're back to darkness. We have barely have an image. We're desperately trying to get our Marine department to get a generator on a boat across the ocean, get power to it and light some lights, which we finally did, which is the only reason you can see the end of the challenge, which ended up going 11 hours and wow. 45 minutes. Until wow. finally Ian stepped down and Tom won and went on to win the game. One of the most <laughs> epic challenges in the history of Survivor. And the first thing we said when it was over is that can never happen again. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. All of that planning and seeing challenges through a specific point of view, through the eyes of a player, does lead to great moments. You saw it last season with Noelle. She had that amazing come from behind win where she had the blade on the balance beam. Go back to Christian Hubicki in David versus Goliath. He's taking on Alec, this, this Goliath, and they're out there for like six hours. He defeats the Goliath. I remember the scene when he looks down and realizes, oh, Alec is not going to make that. I mean, those are great moments. But I got to say, we have to talk about 
my favorite. Oh, I think I know. I bet it's the same as mine. Say it. Suri. Suri. Yeah. The balance beam. So the stage is, that was our 34th season, Game Changers. It's episode eight on Paramount Plus. You just looked that up? I had it in my nose. I actually prepared for this part. I think this is my favorite moment of Survivor. Because for me, the corny part of me, it captures what I want the show to be, which is what are we capable of if we just give ourselves a chance? So to set the stage, there's a balance beam you have to cross in this challenge. And they're out in the ocean and Suri can't get across. And she's exhausted. She's so tired. She can't even pull herself up on the platform that is connected to the balance beam she has to cross. So Sarah, her tribe mate, goes over to help her. But she can only help her get up on the platform. It was a beautiful moment, but Suri still has the balance beam to complete. She's all alone, struggling, falling again and again. And the challenge ends. Her tribe is lost. We could have stopped. We often do. Players don't always finish. But this time we didn't because you could see in her face she didn't want to quit. And I remember saying, Sari, if you want to keep going until you get this, we will stay here with you. This is why you got up off the couch. I mean, Sari was the first person to say, I was sitting at home watching and decided I'm going to get up and give it a try. Well, this is the kind of moment she was looking for. So we waited and everybody was with her and she finished it. It was one of the most beautiful, powerful, historic moments ever in Survivor. And I cried like a baby again. Yeah, seriously. And it's why... When someone wins an individual immunity necklace and I'm putting it around their stinky body and I can feel their energy and they're shaking or they're crying and the audience is saying, God, why so emotional? Big deal. You won a tiddlywink contest. It's a big (laughs) deal because it's the pride of outlasting everyone else, the pride of pushing yourself to your limit. So many of the people who win are not athletes, but today they are the hero of the story. And that's why people play Survivor, to discover What am I capable of achieving if I just give myself a chance? And then what's cool is the audience is watching and they realize, well, if she can do it, maybe I can do it. And that's why people apply. And and if you're listening right now and you're getting the the butterflies or the the chills or whatever, cbssurvivorcasting.com. But you got to apply to have a shot because ultimately... All right, I'm I'm on a roll here. Should I just conclude this with a speech? I think that's what we all want. Okay. (laughs) Here's my thought. Survivor challenges are just one part of what is ultimately an individual adventure. It is you against the environment, you against the game, you against everyone else. But ultimately, it is you against you. And if you can let go of expectations and just give yourself permission to go for it, you'll amaze yourself. Wow, I mean, I want to apply. (laughs) Apply now, Brittany. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, your questions and one lucky person gets to tell me why I suck. Welcome back to On Fire with Jeff Probst. Time for your questions, Mr. J. Wolf. If you have a question, you can email us at survivorshoutout at cbs.com. I will read those questions and I might read yours on the air. Here's question one. What happens, I share this question, what happens when you say, I'm going to give you a minute to strategize, we'll get started, let's get it on. I'll tell you exactly what happens. We stop down, meaning we say, don't talk, and then we take each tribe separately through the entire challenge, just so that they fully understand, because I talk fairly quickly when I'm explaining it. But when I'm finished, I say, now you can't strategize yet. 
because we have to take the other tribes through. So once we've taken all three tribes through the challenge, then we say to each of the tribes at the same time, now you can strategize. So we're just trying to keep it fair so that every tribe has the exact same amount of time to strategize and we rotate which tribe gets the introduction first, second, and third. Huh, never knew that. That's it. That's interesting. All right, question number two. Is the game format set at the beginning or do things change mid-season? For instance, during Survivor Philippines, when the one tribe was decimated to just Malcolm and Denise, they were placed on two other tribes. Right. Was that already set in the show format that they would be changing or was that decision made on the fly? Well, it's a good question. And yes, believe it or not, it's something we thought about because... If there are only two people on a tribe, there can't be a tribal council because you can't vote for yourself and you can only vote for the other person. So if it ever happened again, it would be the same result, which is you take one person and put them on one tribe and you take another person and put them on another tribe. And the reason we do that is now you both have the same hurdle. Your tribe lost, you're in a hole. Now you have to go integrate into a new tribe. All right, question number three. Many of the original notable survivor players now have kids that are old enough to play. While a few of these kids have shown up in Blood versus Water, would you like to see a full Survivor the next generation at some point? I just have to say what's happening right now is our <laughs> dog Stevie is just wanting so much love from Brittany. She's oh, all over she's her. She's such a good girl. Okay, well, back. So Laura, spoken like a true fan, a would-be producer or a casting director, believe it or not, we have talked to a lot of former players about their children being on the show. We actually kind of looked into it at one point, but we didn't really have enough. And then, you know, you'd still have to do the same process. You have to invest in them. They have to go through the same casting process. You want compelling people that, you know, they have to go through psychology and all of that. But I would say if we're on long enough, that is something that would be really fun. And then you find a way to incorporate their parents who played the game in some sort of mentor role or something like that. A loved I, one, I a really reverse like loved this. one. Maybe like we can this. build them a little perch at Tribal Council. I don't know. I'll just spit <laughs> <it on. laughs> okay, Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> All right, Brittany, your favorite part of the show <laughs> where one lucky fan gets to tell me this is why you this suck. This is why you suck. All right. Probst, <laughs> cut your hair. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, dude, you can get a haircut again. It isn't quarantine. Act your age. Uh, all right. Well, first of all, you're doing a good job of picking these because they're hitting me in places <laughs> that I'm very vulnerable, like vanity and age. First of all, I'm just going to say that I am happy to have hair and I never take it for granted. I did grow it longer during COVID, that's true, and there was nobody on the island to cut it, so it kept growing and growing. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you something about me. I kind of like it right now because it takes me back to my old high school rock and roll days. Here's something for you, Jay. Uh-huh. Rock is a theme in this episode, clearly. I was in a band in Seattle with the drummer of Queensryche before he what? was in Queensryche. Scott Rockenfeld, shout out. Wow. And I was certain that when they made the life story of David Lee Roth from Van Halen, which of course they were going to do, that I would play David Lee Roth in the movie version. So I, and I've met <laughs> David now and I still love him, but he's crazy. <laughs> so back to the hair. See, it's the act my age. That, that's the thing that gets me is because I don't want to. <laughs> as you shouldn't. Yeah. I'm not going to be on this planet long enough as it is. So, you know, 
I'm uh, I'm keeping the hair for for now. <laughs> I support that. You know, there's still time for you to play David Lee Roth in the biopic, Jeff. <laughs> I think that day has passed. <laughs> okay, next week on On Fire with Jeff Probst, we're going to go back in time to the summer of 2000, the South China Sea, and the very first season of Survivor. We're going to look at how some of the most iconic parts of the show came to be and how many of those things are still in the show today. Today's version of Survivor is not as different as it sometimes feels. Also, we'll talk about the things that didn't get past the first season, like we had a chest full of fake money at Tribal Council <laughs> with, I'm pretty sure, a spotlight on it. <laughs> and who came up with the phrase, the tribe has spoken. That summer truly remains one of the greatest experiences of my life. And I can't wait to talk about it all next week. We have a new episode of Survivor next Wednesday, 8, 7 central on CBS and Paramount+. And then we drop a new episode of this podcast, On Fire with Jeff Probst. I keep being reminded by the powers that be that if you would rate and review the podcast, it would help. So there you go. We'll see you next week. 